Hi, I'm George Strayton, screenwriter of Hercules and Xena Warrior Princess, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hello everyone, this is Genretainment at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We are your hosts, Marks. And Julie, and today on Genretainment, we speak with David Peterson, an expert in conlang, that's constructed languages for those who are uninitiated. Now, Peterson created the Dothraki language for HBO's Game of Thrones and the languages for the alien races on Sci-Fi Channel's highly anticipated new series, Defiance. Peterson tells us how he became involved in creating languages. Uh, I think he's got around a dozen at this point. Yeah, about that. Uh, how he started doing it professionally for television, introduces us to the world of Conlane, which uh, is much bigger than we realized. Oh, yeah. The process he used to create the languages for Game of Thrones and Defiance, and more. Plus, we have some bonus interviews that I snagged with the cast of Sci-Fi Channel's Haven. Now, what you heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand, a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. And you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now let's get started with our featured interview with linguist David Peterson. Well, you're listening to Genre Entertainment, and this is Marks. And Julie. And we're here speaking to uh, David Peterson, well, basically an expert in making up languages. <laughs> a linguistic expert that specializes in creating languages for television shows uh, and movies, right? Uh, yes. Uh, David, could you introduce yourself and tell us how you first got started in languages and linguistics? Oh, dear. Well, that's a long story that I won't tell. No, no, no. I'll tell you some <laughs> of it. But yeah. So, hi. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, Thank you. I, I, I really appreciate, given all the rigmarole that we won't talk about that occurred, I really appreciate your being <laughs> here. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, I actually was not interested in languages for a long, long time. I grew up with English and Spanish. Be, you know, since I was living here in, in Southern California and going to school, my English progressed a lot faster than my Spanish did. So I would get really frustrated with, you know, relatives that would speak Spanish that I wasn't able to communicate at the level that I was with English. So I kind of swore off languages completely for a time. And then I woke up one morning in my junior year in high school and became, was really upset and, and kind of offended and ashamed that millions of people all over the world spoke French and that I wasn't one of them. Um, <laughs> it was, I don't know why, but uh, I determined then to learn every language on the planet which and I didn't know how many there were at the time, so that was uh, interesting. <laughs> I, I started kind of teaching myself French on my own, though um, I, I understand now why uh, people were laughing at me that I could speak French, because I was pronouncing it as it was written, as if it were, you know, pronounced uh, with a Spanish accent. I had no idea at the time. <laughs> uh, and I started taking German. I started learning Latin on my own. And then when I got to college, I started taking Arabic, which I'd always been fascinated by, and Russian. And then there happened to be an Esperanto class, a student-taught Esperanto class at Berkeley while I was there that I took. And then I also started taking, uh, I took an introductory linguistics course to fulfill a breath requirement. 
And it was a combination of those factors that kind of gave me the idea to create my own language rather than for international communication for fun, just, you know, basically something for me. And so I started creating a language then, and then I've been doing it ever since, really. So what's your level of proficiency in some of those languages, the real life languages, and also which one did you think was harder to learn than any others? Uh, Russian was probably uh, hardest for me to learn uh, just because it's so vast and it, it's really kind of a, a change adjusting to a case language when you speak languages that don't really have any case. You know, Arabic was, was tough, but I immediately I just fell in love with it, in love with the structure of it. It just made perfect sense to me. It's, it felt to me like the most logical language I had ever encountered. And so I progress a little more quickly in that one. So uh, as for now, I am basically at the fluency level that I left off at with every single language I've studied. So, you know, I'm pretty much fluent in Spanish. French, I seem to do pretty okay. German is probably not that great. Um, Sie sprechen ambition Deutsch? Nein, ich spreche kein Deutsch. Sorry, I get excited when someone knows a little German. Ich bin kein Deutschsprecher. Das ist gut. Sie haben einen guten Akzent. Danke schön, danke. Okay, sorry, go on. I'm so confused right now. Mark's just like, I have no idea what's going on. Just whenever, if anybody looks at you, just just say Entschuldigung and then kind of cough or something and walk away. Because Entschuldigung really is a little bit like a cough, you know? It's great. It's just the silliest yeah, it's one of the silliest words I've ever heard myself. Uh, Schmetterling is one of my favorite ones. It's uh, oh, butterfly. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's a, nice, it's a nice and pretty word. I, actually, the word for butterfly in every language is gorgeous, I think. I haven't found a word for butterfly yet that I didn't like. It's uh, sort of fitting, though. You know, that would yeah. really inspire the prettiest sounding word, I would think, in any language. Yeah. <laughs> didn't William Shatner do a movie way back when, all in Esperanto? Yeah, it's called Incubus, and he, he did do that, and it's all in Esperanto. And I've never seen it, but, you know, I have several friends that are fluent Esperanto speakers who have seen it. Apparently, uh, the pronunciation is just atrocious, uh, <laughs> which to me is kind of funny because, um, you know, Esperanto was designed to be, uh, if not, you know, completely simple, at least simpler than other languages. Its pronunciation, at least for those who speak, you know, Western languages, should be fairly intuitive. I really don't understand how you could screw it up that badly, but apparently you did. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's like, uh, it's just a laughable. There's a thousand people that really speak it now, isn't there? Because there was a, a real groundswell of it, you know, when it first started and it sort of petered out, I think. It did. It, World War II, I think, really killed a lot of the, you know, the kind of the international language movement, if not World War I. But yeah, man, if this were like 1893, yeah. <laughs> I, it's nothing like a world war to really kill the kumbaya moment, you know? <laughs> yeah, kind of lame. Yeah, as it stands now, you know, there's a large community. There's, there's like uh, got to be more than a million speakers the world over. And it's wow. mainly kind of, at least the way I look at it, it's, it's less process for peace as it is kind of a fandom. But it's just the thing that people have in common is they speak this language. I've now known several fluent speakers and three native speakers. Whoa. Oh, wow. That's always an interesting story. And, Where do um, they yeah. live? Uh, <laughs> Russia and South Korea. And huh. they, grew up, they grew up speaking their native languages in Esperanto because their parents were Esperanto speakers. 
And that's the language they'd use at home. And then they, they all moved to the United States and learned English. Interesting. Yeah, good stuff. So how did you go from studying languages to doing, which I believe is called conlang, I believe, like construction or conlang. constructed languages? Yeah. I yeah, learned conlang. a new word today. So I was like, <laughs> I think you typed that wrong. That's right. Yeah, say it a whole bunch because it needs to get in the OED. Those guys, I don't know what their problem is. But... <laughs> conlang, conlang, conlang. Darn straight. So after I created that first language, I actually thought that I was the first person in history to ever create a language for fun. You know, I really thought that I was the first person to do that. I, of course, knew who Tolkien was, and I grew up watching Star Trek The Next Generation, but I never knew that there were created languages in them. You know, just because it's something that c can slip by you if you're not paying attention because there's other stuff going on. I think at the time I entertained the idea that I could actually create a company doing this. Uh, this was back when I was on America Online, and I would just find people whose profiles look like they might be interested and I'd spam email them because that was done back then. You could just do that. I mean, now it's kind of passe as it were. <laughs> yeah, I actually created a language for a dude in Oklahoma for like 45 bucks, I think. Oh, that's a good deal. <laughs> yeah. Was, um, what was his reason for needing a language? Uh, he had an RPG uh, that he wanted to run. Oh. It was like... He was created his own campaign, and he wanted his people to have a language. I mean, I'm not sure if it occurred to him until I sent him my mass email, but uh, occurred to him it did. I occurred it to him, as it were. <laughs> so then uh, it was shortly after this that I found the online language creation community and discovered that there were, you know, uh, hundreds if not thousands of people doing this all over the world that had been doing it for quite some time. And it was really at that point point that I discovered that, you know, everything that I had been doing was no good. Uh, I started really learning from other people and improving the way that I went about creating languages. And I continued to improve and then also and, and can continue to take uh, linguistics courses for the next, I don't know, seven years or so. And then, you know, it's been 12 years since then. I'm out of linguistics now, but still uh, in the community. Mm -hmm. so, so what is that process like then when you start making your own language? It differs based on uh, first the type of language you're creating and also the language creator. Uh, everybody kind of has their own process that they're now happy with. You mentioned Game of Thrones. You created the language for the Dothraki. How did you yeah. go about that? Yeah, so that one was even different from the way that I usually do it because I wasn't starting from scratch. In the first three of George R. R. Martin's uh, Song of Ice and Fire uh, series, there are um, there are a bunch of there are a few Dothraki words and a few Dothraki phrases and names. It needed to be, you know, both I wanted and the producers wanted to make sure that everything that was already in the books was going to continue to be accurate. You know, I didn't want the show to come out and have this full Dothraki language and then say, oh, yeah, but the stuff in the books, that was all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is how you really say that. Yeah. So that was um, that was something different. I'd never really done that before, where it's like I started with material that didn't have a language behind it and was, you know, like this is canon. How do I flesh things out around this? And then how do I do what I want to do without breaking the internal consistency of what's available? Uh, now, there wasn't that much material. I was going to uh, ask how developed it was in the book. Not really at all. Like, he, there are no, you know, George R. R. Martin didn't have any notes. By his own admission, he basically came up with the stuff whenever he needed it. But he did a really good job at making the phonology very consistent 
and not doing anything either uh, too crazy, too detailed, or too much like English. It's obvious when you look at it, even the very few little bits he has, that he has adjectives following nouns, which is the opposite of what happens in English. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's really neat. There's uh, material that's translated, but there's just a few phrases. There's enough wiggle room in there that with the translations provided in the material that you have, you could go several different ways with it. And in fact, when I was applying for the job, there were a bunch of different people that were also vying for the Dothraki job and that were creating their own version of it. I think many of us were surprised at how different each other's proposals were. I think many of us kind of did our own work and just kind of did what we thought would be most intuitive based on the material available. That's certainly what I did. And so then it's like to see somebody else that does something completely different that's still plausible. It was just kind of uh, really neat to see. Um, there were a bunch of really neat proposals, in fact, that were done for that job, which is a shame because uh, you can't do anything with them now. I mean, uh, I think a, a lot of uh, the conlangers that submitted proposals took the ideas that they developed there and kind of uh, shoehorned them into other conlangs, which is great because there was a lot of wonderful material that was developed for that. How did you find out about that job opening? I mean, was there a posting somewhere? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. So um, the Language Creation Society that I'm now the president of, but I wasn't at the time, they got the job. And then they basically like put out the proposal to uh, the various online language creation communities. So this one, I think this one had a wide distribution, went several places. It, it certainly went to the Conlang list, uh, ListServe and uh, the ZBB, which were at the time, at least were the two biggest communities. Then it also went out to the other uh, CBB. I think it went to the Elfling list, which is a, a ListServe for people that are interested in uh, Tolkien's languages. It went to the Lojban list. It went to the Klingon list. Um, uh, it may have gone to the linguist list. I don't remember. But yeah, it, it went out to various places. And so then anybody who was interested could just apply. But the details were vague. And I think that was perhaps like a, there wasn't as large a response as I expected. You know, I expected like 100 applicants. There were about 40. And I think that uh, it was because the details were so vague. You know, it's a language creation society saying, we're looking for people to apply for a job to create a language for a TV show with no further details. <laughs> uh, because they were bound by a, um, you know, an, an NDA. And I think many people looked at that and thought either this is going to be, you know, some ridiculous or stupid show. It's not going to get off the ground or this is fake. <laughs> it turned out not to be. So do you look at what they have of the culture and then sort of compare it to real world examples? Do you create the sentence structure first? I mean, how, how do you go about creating the language? Uh, I usually start with the grammar. Well, after, after the sound system is set, though, there's a back and forth process there. So it's like I started with the sound system and then usually I go to the grammar and usually flesh out the grammar quite a bit before I get to the, you know, the much more uh, lengthier process of fleshing out the lexicon. Uh, that can honestly be a lifetime, you know, project, uh, depending on how large you want to make the language. Uh, certainly, I'm still expanding the lexicon of Dothraki, and I plan to keep on doing it uh, when, I, when I have time. But yeah, usually I like to get the grammar set first, uh, you know, kind of the inflectional morphology uh, and the, the syntactic patterns. That will continue to expand as you develop the lexicon, though. Because there's a lot of, and this goes for any language, there's a lot of uh, kind of syntactic structures that, and, and morphological structures that are lexic, lexeme dependent. 
as it were. So it's kind of like you, you develop certain case frames or certain patterns of speaking and certain uh, idioms also based purely on specific lexical items. And so those will kind of keep adding to the grammar in bits, but usually in a way that kind of makes sense, that's using the stuff that you already have developed. And that kind of, you know, fleshes it out and makes it realistic. How many uh, words are there in Dothraki? Uh, Dothraki, there's uh, 3,600 right now. Wow. Uh, just to give you an idea, so um, a lot of creative languages usually kind of, you know, it's, it's usually kind of an achievement when you get like 500 words in a language or 1,000. For a, a second language learner, if you take like a full series of college courses, by the end of it, you usually command a vocabulary of around 8,000 words. A typical high school graduate, of English-speaking high school graduate, has a vocabulary of around 50,000 words. And then uh, there have been claims that English has over a million words. And depending on how you count that, that's probably either way overinflated or way underinflated, honestly. Uh, it is a complicated it, it, language to learn as a second language English is. You know, it, it, it can be pretty confusing. <laughs> yeah, especially if you have to learn how to spell it. It's just a nightmare. Oh, I know. <laughs> I always uh, feel so bad when someone's learning something and they look at me. I'm like, that's another exception. <laughs> yeah. So Same. do you have exceptions built into the Dothraki language or any languages? Yeah, you got to do that. Uh, that is, if, if you're creating a language that you intend to be realistic, because realistic languages do have exceptions. They do have irregularities. They have them all over the place. But they don't have them randomly. They're usually principled. I think it's much, uh, you know, looking at English, it, it, there's a certain logic to the plural of child being children and something like goose geese, as opposed to like the plural of child being um, forks, you know. Yeah, child's. Uh, yeah, um, so there's sense behind the irregularities, and that's what it's kind of like my goal to try to build in, because the idea is to create a language that could have existed, you know, that you could actually run into in this world, you know, in the universe of ice and fire, I suppose, where um, for all intents and purposes, it's kind of like our world, except older and, you know, with dragons, mm -hmm. so... You know, you want to try to make it as realistic as possible. So, yeah, plenty of irregularities. Were there any languages, either, you know, real world languages or other, you know, created languages that acted as an inspiration for the Dothraki language? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, in, in little bits, there are certain things I, I kind of liked that I wanted to build in. There were certain um, uh, sound patterns of Spanish that I really admired that I tried to build in and uh, certain sounds of Arabic that I really liked that I built in. Uh, aside from that, there were, there were, you know, like little things here and there, like, uh, that, you know, influenced it. For example, kind of like the way I built up a lexicon was actually influenced a lot by one of my own languages, Giler. I, I kind of wanted the feel of it when you were actually putting sentences together to kind of feel the way it felt when I was putting together sentences of Russian. Uh, but aside from that, uh, there was no, you know, no real, large direct influence of any one language or any group of languages it's it's just the case that if you're creating a certain type of language it will tend to look like other uh, similar languages so this is a an inflectional language that builds a lot of that inflection either onto the verb or onto the noun itself and so it looks like other languages that do something similar which is kind of like russian 
kind of like Latin and then maybe like older Greek, uh, not uh, not modern Greek. Uh, and so it'll end up looking like those, but it's not like those languages directly influenced it in, um, in anything but kind of like a trivial way. Now, how does this language get from you to, say, the actors and the director? I mean, are you spelling it out phonetically? Do they have? Do you have to teach them kind of this is your new language and get them through some basics? How does that work? Oh, no, because uh, the actors don't need to actually learn, you know, uh, how the language works. They just need to pronounce it right and with the correct inflection. So one of the things that that I do is I give them kind of, you know, you know, I I get the scripts. The, the lines that they want translated, I translate them, I send back a phonetic version, and then kind of an approximate word-for-word -word translation so that, you know, it's not proper English when it's translated, but it gives them an idea which parts go with which words and in which order. So then they, they know kind of where to place the emphasis in addition to listening to the lines that I, I record, because, you know, I record all the lines on MP3 and I send them to them. Okay. And uh, usually that's, uh, at least as far as I've seen, that's all they need in order to produce it authentically. You know, if they, certainly if they want to learn the language, it's there. But, you know, it's a language. It takes time. <laughs> <laughs> and they're a little busy. <laughs> yeah. Now, I believe there's a website for fans of Dothraki, isn't there? Yeah, Dothraki.org. So people can go there and check it out. Yeah. And now, how many still... languages have you created? I don't know, like 16 or 17 now, I think. Wow. Uh, but when you say that, some of them have been developed uh, more fully than others. Mm -hmm. So I, I'd say that there are, I, that I probably have two languages that I created on my own that now rival or, or that rival the level of something like Dothraki or uh, the languages I've done for uh, Defiance. Uh, obviously, now I'm focusing pretty much exclusively on those, so they're the ones that get all the attention. And so they're becoming larger and larger and more fully developed, and pretty soon they're going to eclipse any of the languages I created before, which is a shame because I really like Kamikawi, one of my languages, and I haven't touched it in like a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's that language like in comparison uh, to Dothraki? Or... That language was inspired by, um, I always loved the Hawaiian language, and I still do. It's my favorite language. It's, it's beautiful. And I really wanted to learn it, but was having trouble finding resources on it. And so I created a language, this is Kamakawi, that was kind of like what I thought Hawaiian might be like. And uh, it does share some, some structural similarities, but, you know, I didn't know much Hawaiian at the time. So there are also things that are uh, quite different. So it's really unique, but it has kind of a—it has a definite Polynesian sound to it. I later, <laughs> I later went on to get a whole bunch of resources on Hawaiian. I like have an entire library just dedicated to Hawaiian resources. So now I, I know it a little bit, and I started to learn it, but it's really tough without you know. I, I need a I need a native speaker. Uh, yeah. I, I I discovered that I need like a native speaker and some sort of a classroom setting to really learn a language. I don't, and I would love to do that. If I lived in Hawaii, that's, I'd be speaking nothing but just I, a wonderful language. Yeah, I think that would be one of the more complex. The long strands of vowels confuse the heck out of me. Now, you can give me like 20 consonants in a row and I'm good. <laughs> but, but you start, I mean, the, the, the repetition of the sounds and all the vowels and... I, I I get lost. It's just I don't know why I have a a, a mental block against vowels. <laughs> well, it's it's because we're so used to speaking English, and you know, which is a, a proper Germanic language. We're not used to having five or six vowels in a row, which can get in Hawaiian. 
I, I think that the, the longest I've seen is five vowels, actually. Five vowels in a row. <laughs> yeah, it's, you have to have almost a real musical ear, I think, for some of, well, for any language. I mean, they all seem to sort of have their own rhythm, but those are, are seem very melodic. Mm, yeah, especially if you're listening to Israel Kamakavivo Ole. That guy's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Even that sounded great. But yeah, I've, I've actually familiar with some. Yeah, he's very good. You mentioned getting involved with the new sci-fi original series, Defiance. Yeah, that's how yes. I met you up in yeah, Toronto. Yeah, that's how Marks met you up in Toronto, so I'll let him take yeah. this questioning. How'd you go from Game of Thrones to Defiance? Nine years after their arrival... When the destruction finally ran its course, it wasn't exactly Earth anymore. Something new had been created. You all know what to do. Defiance, coming this April, only on Sci-Fi. Ah, well, and I, I, I have a fellow named Tom Lieber to thank. <laughs> Tom Lieber is producer on Defiance and... Uh, I guess he had a friend who was working in the NBC page program that used to also work with another guy. And this is a guy that I worked with on Game of Thrones, Brian Cogman. And so he knew Game of Thrones and, and he really liked it. He, he liked what I did. And, you know, we had this upcoming project defiance and he thought that I would work very well on it. So he kind of contacted me that way. I got a hold of him, and I had a, a lunch meeting with him, and at the time, Rockney O'Bannon, he was on the project at the time, he's moved on to a cult, but um, just kind of had a lunch meeting, and I, I talked about my ideas for like how I would add languages to the show. I, I'd read an early version of the pilot, and pretty much from then on, I was, I was on board, and I've been there since uh, November 2011. How many languages are you creating for this? Yeah, so for so for Defiance, there's two full languages for two different alien, uh, I, I think races is the appropriate term, not species, because if there are two different species, they couldn't interbreed. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but uh, so for two different, two different alien races have two full languages they speak that are each of which is now kind of rivaling Dothraki in its level of development. And then for two of the other races, I created kind of a, a language palette. This was mainly to uh, do things like create uh, names and then also kind of drop in words or drop in phrases here and there. You know, we'll, we'll see if uh, if we if we get, you know, future seasons, maybe they'll get expanded later on. So that was, was what I created as, uh, for regarding languages. And then I also got the opportunity to develop three different writing systems, one each for the two main languages and then one of them for uh, one of the uh, language palettes. Uh, that was for me. That was just like a dream come true because that's that's my most fun is creating uh, writing systems, and, uh, and I was really kind of happy with being able to do that and the fact that they've used it so much. Oh, good. What steps do you take on creating the written language? Then, uh, for that, um, it's it's a really kind of a, a different and interesting process. So uh, it helps, I think, if you have the language fully developed, because it just seems that. Uh, certain writing systems are, are better suited to certain language structures than others. But then it's always fun to apply it to languages for which it doesn't work. Like, it's just wonderful to see the Arabic uh, script, which is so well suited to the Arabic language, applied to something like Farsi, for which it's so ill-suited, or uh, Turkish, or uh, well, they don't use it for Turkish anymore, but they used to, or, uh, or Urdu. Um, and to see how they need to bend it to make it work yeah. for a language that it's clearly not suited for. 
But uh, so for this, kind of like uh, the languages had been developed. They were actually already at a pretty uh, good state of completion before I was doing the scripts. From there, I, just, I, I kind of had uh, three systems that I was going to play with. And based on the three alien types that I was getting, I decided to make two more naturalistic writing systems and then one of them artificial because they're this third uh, set of aliens, the indigenes, they are people that were kind of like natural people at one time, but now they are heavily genetically modified and also kind of like have a lot of uh, mechanical implants uh, that do, you know, all sorts of things from improving their eyesight so they could see like microscopes to having things that, you know, jump out of their bodies that do crazy things. Uh, a lot of fun stuff. And so I figured for them, they would probably have some sort of a writing system that was kind of like uh, unambiguous and probably could get away with being non-natural. So for them, I created kind of like a script where every single token, every single glyph, whether it's for a sound or a number or anything, is uh, within a hexagon. And then you can kind of line these up and stack them, write them in various ways. And then they kind of, uh, it was really neat. The show took that hexagon motif and applied it everywhere so that their skin is actually composed of miniature hexagons and their eyes, if you look up really close at them, they wear these contact lenses that are actually, their their, their pupils are hexagonal. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's really neat. And they put it up on, there's, there's a building that has a, a hexagon kind of tile thing on it. It's just, oh man, it was a dream come true. But anyway, if you actually try to write this system by hand, it just like takes you forever and it would <laughs> break down. And that was basically my idea they probably have kind of like enhancements that allow them to easily read and write this system and to do it perfectly without, you know, any fudge ups, without uh, using, you know, a, a stylus or anything like that. Uh, with the other two writing systems, I try to develop them naturally. And so what this is, is that uh, the, the writing systems that we have now have evolved a lot over time and, and often are kind of not even well suited to what uh, they're being used to write at present. So for both of these, I kind of created a way that these systems would have been written at some time, uh, you know, many, many years in the past, uh, perhaps with a different type of, you know, writing implement than a stylus. And then I kind of evolved them over time and then had the languages changed too. So that uh, the, the writing systems are more natural. They, they can they actually be written fairly well. And that with, uh, especially with Castathon, which is one of the two of these, the spelling system is so complex that I think it's, it's more complex than English <laughs> to be able to spell something correctly. I, it takes me forever. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you think that, um, not to put you on the spot, but yeah. you mentioned languages you've created before Game of Thrones and then Dothraki yeah. and then some of these alien languages. Would you be able to say some things in some languages just to, and tell us which language it is just to kind of give us an idea of what they sound like? Uh, Oh, probably. Uh, like, <laughs> I don't know. Where should I start? <laughs> uh, what, what was the, the one you, Jing something, the one you created before that you said you haven't oh. touched in like a year? And... Oh, Kamikawe? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. But I have that same problem that you do with uh, Hawaiian in that <laughs> it's, you know, it's very simple. There are no sounds that are, are difficult to pronounce, but I often have, a, have trouble getting it right. In oh, the order. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try the this. The good thing I'm is gonna... you create it, so we won't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh brother, I'll know. 
Okay, I'm gonna try this, but I'm probably gonna get it wrong. Okay, so this is so I wrote for my old word of the day block. Okay, so this sentence is this is Kamakawi. Let's see. Yeah, a palaki oii, and that means uh, yes, I clothe my dog. <laughs> That's a great <laughs> sentence, just in any language, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh-uh. Now, what was love... the one that language you mentioned? It's not like it started with a J something earlier. Yeah, there's another oh, language. Gieler. Yeah. Gieler. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me see if I can find something that's written in that. I certainly can't produce something off the top of my head in that language. It's. Uh, I was going to say, you know, you've got too many languages difficult. rattling around in your brain. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. And I'm starting off with the older ones, then I figured you could work your way up to the new. <laughs> okay. Okay, okay, here we go. This this one shouldn't be too bad. Okay, Um and that means I gave a stone to the writer. I have no idea why I'm coming up with bizarre. Uh, <laughs> but I love the sound of that. That sounded yeah. great. That was that's an interesting sound. What's that? What's... It's got some Russian in it too. Yeah. I like that. This this one is uh, basically this is when I had fell, fallen in love with Turkish, and so I created a, a, a Turkish-like language. I, I think that's a, how a lot of us uh, start off when we're creating languages. You know, we we fall in love with one language or another, and so we want to create a language that has the same feel. And so that was kind of like that was that was good old Schiller, which uh, I, this one I haven't touched in like three years. <laughs> <laughs> I like the sound of that. Now, what about something in Dothraki? That should be a little more recent, a little easier. Oh yeah, yeah. Let me see if I can actually just say something in Dothraki. What should I say? <laughs> oh, yeah, I could, I could say that. <laughs> what should I say? That, that would be how you'd say that. Oh, okay. <laughs> neat. Now, what is some of the alien for defiance? What do some of those languages sound like? Oh, dear. That one, I, I probably can't even come up with sentences because, uh, you know, they, they would be from scripts and I can't say those yet. But uh, OK. Oh, that's see. right. <laughs> OK, <laughs> but, but I'll, I'll try to I'll try to give you some of it. So Erathian um, or Erathian, depending on how you pronounce it, which is one of my favorite languages now. The way that you say um, hello is it's in Eziri. Oh, I like that. Uh, oh, that, that one is just so much fun. I've got uh, the the people that are speaking it on the show are just way too good. Like I, I'm, I'm so impressed with their level of dedication and how much they got into it. That one is just, uh, <laughs> I like that one a lot. But it's incredibly difficult difficult to put together uh, phrases in it or sentences. It's it's hard to use. It's huh. not user friendly. Yeah. Well, uh, and also that you can only say so much without giving too much away before it yeah. airs. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean it. it and I like kind of the references. I do um, not so much in languages as much as I'd like, but I also do some international folk dancing. And sometimes, like, I go and I, I, I'm, they're trying to teach me a dance, and finally I'm like, what country is it from? And if they can tell me the country, sometimes that helps me pick up on, oh, okay, you dance it this way. <laughs> because it just, each each culture and each each style, you know, each language has its own style, its own unique look and feel to it and sound, right. you know. And the language is very much the same way. <laughs> yeah. I'm, okay. I, I can I can actually do something in cast then. I just need to think of a noun, some some sort of a noun. Oh. Dog. Dog. No, no, no. See, see, but the they don't. Their word for dog is borrowed from the English word for dog. Oh, that's right. Because they didn't have any dogs in their world. Mm. Yeah, they didn't have they didn't have dogs. But now they're on Earth where there are dogs. So they say, "What's that?" It's called a dog. So there you go. <laughs> 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 
Uh, okay, no, no, no. What's what's a good what's a good native word? Um, something that everybody has. Uh, oh, telo. Uh, how about how about just the word for mask? There we go. Telo. Uh, okay, okay. Wait, let me let me just get this straight in my head. Uh, okay, there we go. Okay, I got it. Okay, ready? Okay. Detaxa teladokera. What's that mean? That means uh, Daytalk has a mask. There you go. <laughs> and, now, and I actually, you know what? No, it, it'd be more like Daytalk has a mask as opposed to somebody else, uh, the way I said it. Oh, so you're putting the emphasis on that person has. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, so, that, um... that one's easier to use. That one's easier to use. But it's very hard to say because it's so fast. It is fast, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it really, you rattled that off really quick. <laughs> Now, I noticed you're labeled as Ellen Language and Culture Consultant for Defiance. Yeah. So that culture consultant element, is that just the, the, the writing of it, or is there more to it than that that you do for the show? Yeah, actually, um, I basically, it's like, you know, kind of my role has been building as the show has been filming, and, and the amount of stuff that I'm able to do has increased. Kind of like what I, what I what I started doing was I would I would get scripts and then basically I'd give comments back. Really focusing on it's kind of like my area of specialty. Then is each of these alien races and kind of making sure that they all like cohere culturally, that they that it makes sense, uh, kind of what they do and say, and filling out kind of their backstory because like we didn't really give an introduction to Defiance, but uh, basically um, all of this takes place on Earth. We never ever see the place where these alien races came from, so it's they kind of uh, a lot was uh, was was left to me to kind of tease out, uh, you know what what their life was like back on their home planets, uh, what their what their social systems were like, you know. So for example, uh, one of the things the uh, Castathans have kind of. Uh, a complex caste system. I was basically able to flesh out the details of that. All lots of times, these things they go hand in hand with language. Yeah, that would uh, that would influence how you address somebody with a caste system. Yeah, exactly. And then this also kind of tied into their religion, which I also uh, fleshed out a, a good portion of. I, I I worked on uh, bits of the religions for the various aliens, and so and then it, it just kind of like you know I just kept on getting to do stuff. Like I, I kind of designed an, an alien earth hybrid uh, poker style game um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and the rules for how to play the game. And we figured out, they, they kind of came up with these cards. And then uh, my wife and I developed kind of a series of probabilities where like, if you had this set of cards, then these are the types of hands you could get. And this is how likely it would be that you would get one. Um, and then that kind of like, uh, changed and then so and then yeah man uh, there's just so much stuff i got to do it's there's so much cool stuff and i i really can't wait for everybody to see the show but you know it's like it's april of next year so obviously we can't say too much about it yet but i i really can't wait for people to see it i think people are going to like it a lot yeah it sounds really interesting yeah I, when i was in toronto i got to see as you know because you were there too the yeah. makeup of the aliens and i got to see some photos at least yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it seems like they put a lot of a lot of effort to develop and flesh out the the world a yeah, lot, a lot you know, more than you usually see, especially right out the gate. I think it's maybe more than anything I've seen out right out the gate of like an original product. Yeah. So yeah, uh, it's 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 cool to think like what could be you know what it could be five seasons from now. By the way, it's actually funny you mentioned that I went to the rap party 
uh, for season one up in Toronto. And that was actually the very first time I saw many of the aliens not in their makeup. Uh, <laughs> and you couldn't recognize them. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I... I I actually didn't know, for example, that uh, that the the woman playing the librata was a woman. <laughs> <laughs> I I was completely taken aback by that. So <laughs> great makeup and acting. <laughs> I know some oh, makeup was very elaborate. Um, yeah, it really did look like it was. Man, oh, I can't imagine having to put all that on your face every single day. Wow, they they they're they're real. They've got real fortitude. I would say the amount of time it takes to put that on and then take it off is insane. Yeah. Um, in the lexicon of the languages you created for defiance, where, where would you estimate guesstimate uh, how many words in a language that you've created so far? Oh, I, I keep track. Um, so um, let's see. Uh, Arathian is at nineteen hundred, and Castathan is at thirteen hundred. And it's odd because I think you're actually going to hear more Castathan in the show because of the type of language that Arathian is. It's just uh, so easy to coin words that it's just fun. <laughs> <laughs> I end up sitting down with a root and coining a bunch of words. Uh, specifically because that language is, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Bantu languages or, or Niger-Kodafanian languages. You know, Pretty like, much nothing. Okay, so... <laughs> In uh, Swahili, that'll be the Bantu language that everybody knows the most. Mm -hmm. uh, Swahili has, I want to say, uh, is it 10? No, I'm going to get this wrong. I, I can't believe I can't remember this. I think it's 16 different noun classes. That makes sense. Yeah, 16 different noun classes. And what these are is they're kind of loose, but there will be a different prefix on a root depending on if the, if the noun refers to a human being. Or if the noun refers to like a tree or plant, or if the noun refers to uh, an implement, or if the noun refers to like, um, what's another one, a group. And so you can kind of, uh, just by hearing the first syllable of a noun in Swahili, you know a little bit about what the word has to mean, or you know, the type of word that it, that it would be. All of the Bantu languages do this to either a greater or a lesser extent. So like uh, Zulu, um, uh, the language I studied called Moro, which is a Niger-Kordofanian language. I've always really liked that system. It's, uh, it's a neat way to kind of structure a lexicon. So I decided to do that for Erathian. But, um, you know, since it was an alien language, I can have fun with it. Uh, like the first 10 noun classes are divided into kind of like non-dangerous and dangerous types of things. Um, so like the classes one and two are for non-dangerous and dangerous, uh, humanoids. Originally it was for Erathians, but then, you know, they went out and met aliens. So actually usually the aliens ended up in class two for the dangerous Erathians. But, you know, now it's just kind of the alien class. Um, then there's like, you know, uh, then there's, uh, non-dangerous and dangerous plants, non-dangerous and dangerous animals, non-dangerous and dangerous implements or kind of inanimate objects. And then non-dangerous, dangerous liquids. And then after that, the classes get a little bit more uh, specific. There's one for places. There's one for abstracts. There's one for verbal stems. There's one for uh, groups. Uh, and then diminutives and augmentatives and things like that. So all in all, there are 18 uh, of these noun classes. Wow. And, and so what happens then is you coin these roots that might not really mean anything on their own. 
but as they have as they have these uh, well, there's circumfixes, I guess, as they have these class circumfixes applied to them, they take on meaning. For the most part, you can kind of guess, like if you if you know the root and you know, uh, or if you know a root from another word, or and then you see the new class that it's in, you can kind of guess what it means. But then there are tons of irregularities because that's the kind of fun that you can have with this, uh, and that you see in languages like Swahili. So uh, anyway, I usually, you know, if I if I coin a root, you know, it feels lazy to sit down and not create at least five or six words in that root. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like the idea that, you know, with them first, the, the dangerous class was the dangerous others of their species. And then anything, a different alien species was suddenly now uh, a, in the dangerous group. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you know, older words for like thief and criminal and like killer or murderer, they'll all be in that second class. But then also it'll just be, you know, aliens that, you know, may or may not be dangerous. But, you know, back then, you know, they were invaders. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think it really speaks to the power of language, too, because, you know, just the I just the fact that because they are different and from someplace else and look different, they are automatically in the dangerous class with our thieves and our murderers. You know, that would definitely right. have an impact on their psyche and how they would treat you know, the other, the, the humans or the other aliens, you know, the people right. who are different than them. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that it really does speak to the power of language to, you know, if you can change the language, you can change the ideas, but they kind of have to go together. Yeah. Well, and of course, part of the fun is that now that uh, in, in this series, now that they've been living on Earth for a while, there are aliens that have been born on Earth and are now like in their teens and 20s that have known no other home. Mm hmm. And so their perspectives are totally different from their parents. And um, they don't, you know, they obviously don't have the same memories. They don't have memories of their home world. And so you will get to see the languages change a little bit in the mouths of these younger speakers who um, probably don't have the same prejudices their parents do, don't speak the language the same way their parents do, and certainly don't like maybe adhere to all the rules that used to be hard and fast rules for the language. So it's pretty um, much the the traditional generational struggle between immigrant parents and their kids who were born in the new new country. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's basically like a 21st century immigrant drama. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you started in Conlane, uh, did you learn a little Klingon, a little Elvin? Uh, no. Um, I, I So I, I did at one point in time when I learned that Klingon was a language, because I didn't know that, remember, at the beginning. There are some Klingon lessons that you can take online. They're still there. They're PDFs. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went and took a look at those. But, you know, after a while, it's like I mean, Klingon is kind of like 100% regular and very agglutinating. So it's it's kind of like, you know, once you get it, it's like, oh, that's how that goes. <laughs> um, well, uh, I'm getting flashbacks of, from the Big Bang Theory where they're sitting around playing Klingon boggle. <laughs> you can do it. Uh, uh, I think it would be actually a probably a little easier to learn to speak Klingon because, you know, it's kind of like there's there's two, you're, you can be of two minds here. I mean, it's one thing to create a really authentic, natural, realistic language, uh, but then it becomes very difficult to learn. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure it's, it's, it's there, there are a number of people that are fluent in Klingon. It's probably because it's not that difficult uh, uh, to learn, though it's it remains very difficult to pronounce. Um, I, I think mean, you probably pronounce it better when you have a cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then you, then you really get in touch with your uvula. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you can really 
you know, get that sound, you know, <laughs> the more congested you are. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about Elvin? How's that compared to some of the other languages you've created? Well, you know that Tolkien created a family of languages. So uh, a lot of people will think of Tolkien and then they will think of Elvish. But actually, there is no Elvish language per se. There are a whole series of them. The, the two that people will be most familiar with are either Sindarin or Quenya. They're two different languages uh, derived from the same proto-language. And in fact, I think that all of his languages are ultimately derived from the same proto-language. There might be some that were uh, came from different sources, but they weren't as fleshed out. And so uh, they are kind of like, they're really, they're, they're really a fascinating study because this is a, a guy who was who basically, one of the earliest recorded examples that we have of somebody that just caught the conlanging bug and was doing this for fun. Like he wasn't sitting down to create a language thinking everybody must learn this uh, so that we can you know, affect world peace. It was basically him and M.A.R. Barker, I think, were the, uh, the earliest ones that we have on record uh, of doing that, who either you know, weren't doing that or trying to create a logical language or weren't, uh, didn't think they were being inspired by angels. And so he... Uh, he was a philologist by trade, and so he started with the historical process, which uh, is something that we've now recognized as basically the best way to create a naturalistic language at this point. And he, uh, he did some things that were really interesting. The problem with Tolkien's languages is that he had absolutely no audience. And that sounds kind of strange if you think about how popular his works are. What I mean is that there was no audience for his languages. Right. Uh, there were people that were reading his books that were interested in his languages while he was still alive. But this was before the Internet. You know, it's like you couldn't just they... Google it and hear no, it. <laughs> no. And so, you know, uh, maybe if the, somebody, you know, mustered up the courage to write him a letter. But other than that, there was nobody for him to bounce ideas off of. Nobody who was really you know, super interested in that aspect of his work. And once The Hobbit was published and The Lord of the Rings were published and he started to gain international fame, everybody was interested in the books. And then, of course, that also began to take up, you know, his time. He's, he was writing the books. And so um, the, he has a ton of language sketches that I think a lot of us are this way, honestly, a ton of language sketches that are kind of half finished or maybe just sketches of ideas, maybe something where he only wrote it down on a page. Well, that's um, like any but, artist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, oh, that's true. But like there was, what I, what, but I guess what I'm trying to say is there was no, there was no real reason for him to continue to do it since there was nobody that was really directly interested in his work at the time. Whereas there was all this pressure for him to continue working on the stories, you know, on, on his essays, on, right. on his legendarium. So uh, for that reason, we, I don't think we got to see the best of Tolkien. Uh, like what we have is really outstanding but he never really brought it to completion. And this is actually the source of a lot of controversy amongst his, uh, the fans of his languages when the movies came out. Because, you know, they, they hired David Sallow to kind of translate the dialogue using his language, and they needed more dialogue than there were words for, so he would have to kind of coin stuff. And there were some people that were quite upset about this, mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, anybody would add to it, but it's like, you know, they were making a movie and they needed this stuff. <laughs> if he wasn't going to do it, if somebody wasn't going to do it, they would just make it up themselves. Mm -hmm. I, I'd rather see somebody who kind of knew what his languages were about do that than, you know, uh, a random person. Um, 
throw anyway, some clean on. So. <laughs> <laughs> Just throw in yeah. something that sounds good. Uh... Yeah. No, it happens. It happens. So, you know, I'd sometimes imagine. You, yeah. you just do what you got to do. Those two languages are very famous. And then you have have your languages, uh, Dothraki, and, and I'm sure the Defiance languages will get pretty, will get very popular. Um, is there any other fictional languages that maybe we haven't heard of before that you, that you've heard of before? Oh God, tons, tons, hundreds, thousands. Uh, like, do you, uh, do you want ones that are connected to, to fictional works or my, that, you know, languages that I know that are connected uh, by, to fictional works, fictional works, uh, fictional works. I don't know. Well, yeah, there's tons of them. Like the, uh, Victoria Fromkin created a Pakuni language for, um, uh, what's it called? Land of the Lost. Yeah. The old show. The oh, old show. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure how well, uh, it was incorporated. I, I watched it as a kid, but uh, like literally I was three years old, so I wasn't paying <laughs> that careful attention. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, there was a language that was developed for the first Blade movie. Um, that was also Victoria Fromkin, and then they wanted to expand it for the second movie. But um, Matt Pearson, who uh, developed a language for Dark Skies, a, a, a show that didn't get very far, uh, in the 90s, she was asking for basically a very modest sum of money, and they decided that that was too much. <laughs> so they just created gibberish, which happens a lot. Uh, let's see. Uh, what else? Uh, there, there, was a, there was some vampire movie that has a language that was created by a professor from New Zealand. I don't know, I don't know what the name of the vampire is, though, or the name of the language is, or the name of the professor. But it's, it was recent. Uh, <laughs> let's see. <laughs> That wasn't um, me laughing at that time. Yeah, um, I'm curious. I'm gonna look that up. Yeah, I know. I'm just thinking. Oh, we're gonna be looking this up later. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna be looking oh, up that vampire. Probably the probably the most uh, the most interesting one that was developed for something like that was Laadan, which is by help me out. Who's Laadan? Suzette Hayden Elgin. Uh, yeah. Uh, she created it for her native tongue series. And that, that's an interesting philosophical language. But, um, I mean, all of these that were developed for shows, they really, they're really not as interesting as, uh, as the things that, you know, online community members have created. Like uh, one, of the, uh, one of the oldest ones uh, was by David Bell, who's, who's now uh, passed on. He created a language called Amanyar, which is incredible. It was inspired by Tolkien, and he kind of uh, went and created a split ergative language uh, based on it. It was really interesting. Um, Matt Pearson, who created that language for um, Fallen Skies, Falling Skies, Fallen Skies. Oh yeah, Falling Skies. Yeah. Yeah. He um, his main language. It was. It's famously known as Tokana, but it's now called Okuna. That is one of the best languages that I think we've got. Okuna, and uh, and he's got a, a grammar up that that you can read. Um, Let's see. Uh, Sylvia Sotomayor's Kalen is outstanding. John uh, Quijada's Ithquil is an outstanding masterwork. These are really the best languages I think our community has to offer. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, they're not attached to anything famous, so nobody's heard of them. But, you know, I, I, I try my best to spread the word here and there. Yeah, I, never, I didn't realize how many yeah. rich uh, constructed languages there are. Oh, and that's just scratching the surface. The, the, when we used to have a, a website, which unfortunately has fallen, uh, it's, it's no longer up, but it was outstanding, langmaker.com. He used to count down the 200 top languages of the year. Oh, right. my God. Those were just the top ones. It's mind-boggling how many languages there are. Granted, wow. a lot of them will never get beyond the level of a sketch. 
but some of them are really quite detailed and only live in websites or in, in people's grammars that they have at home or on Word documents. And honestly, uh, that's where the state of the art is. That's where the best work is done. How would you recommend if anyone would be interested in exploring ling traditional linguistics and then also the creating your own languages? How would someone go about that? Uh, well, unfortunately, linguistics has never <laughs> ventured further than the university. So if you happen to be at a university and there's an introductory linguistics class, please take it. <laughs> It'll probably fulfill a breath requirement somewhere. And you will either know within like the first two classes that you never want to go near it again or you'll be hooked for life. Um, so it's it, a it love really, it or hate it kind of relationship. Yeah. And honestly, the two camps cannot understand each other. I, I, I met some people while I was at Berkeley that were taking the introductory linguistics class and they were like, I don't get this. Like, what are you supposed to do here? I'm like, it's so simple. It gets so much more complex than this, but no, <laughs> it, it just wasn't for them. Um, and then for uh, created languages, you can start going to conlang.org. It's the Language Creation Society's website. And we've got links that send you everywhere. There is a lot of good stuff. And a lot of it is on the web. And, you know, if, if you're looking for something, go to conlang.org, find our email address. Uh, you can email me at uh, president at and I will send you to whatever you need. There's literally thousands of people doing this, thousands of people creating languages uh, that, at all different skill levels, all different ages. How you spell conlang, C-O-N-L-A-N-G, is that? Yep. Okay. Yeah, short for constructed language. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that our listeners heard it clear enough. Oh, yeah. Be able to... <laughs> Perfect. There you go. See Mark's just looking at me like, what the, hell you, what the heck's your problem? I'm like, I just <laughs> want to make sure it gets through. <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything else you can hint about Defiance? This is shameless plug time. Anything or, or, or Defiance-related any or any other projects that you might want to uh, uh, spread the okay. word about? Shameless plugs. Okay, first, uh, Game of Thrones, uh, March 31st, 2013, season three, it's coming back. Uh, Defiance, April 2013, look out for that. Uh, and then there's also a video game you can show in the Gamer Connected, which I think it's, that's the first time anything like that's ever been done, so that should be interesting. And then uh, also uh, on the calling in front, if you're interested and you happen to be in the American Southwest or you just feel like traveling, the Fifth Language Creation Conference is happening at the University of Texas at Austin on May 4th and 5th, 2013, and we would love to have you. Hi, I'm Victor Miller. I wrote Friday the 13th, and you're listening to Genretainment. Thanks to David Peterson for speaking with us, and we look forward to seeing his work on Defiance, which premieres April 2013. Now, when I visited the set of the show in Toronto, I was blown away by all of the visual effects and elaborate set construction and effects makeup the show was doing. Mm -hmm. Now, you never know how science fiction audiences will react to a show, but Sci-Fi Channel is gearing up to make Defiance their next big hit, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, let's hear those bonus interviews that Marks did with the cast of Haven. At a party in Toronto, he spoke a little bit with the cast members, Eric Balfour, Lucas Bryant, and Edge.
your character's changed quite a bit once the revelation of your father. When was your first hint that that was going to happen? Um, I mean, we talked about it at the beginning of the year. We had a, a long meeting with the writers, and so I sort of knew some of the arcs that were coming this season. Um, but honestly, even ending last season, I kind of was—I had no idea where this was going. I was really nervous. I was like, uh, "Are they going to turn me into a, a, a dick?" <laughs> and it's been really fun. Well, how do you feel about your trouble? Do you have a power? How do you feel about getting all that that eye thing going on? It wasn't until like last week's episode, it was last Friday, it was a couple nights ago, that I really realized how cool it was. Because you don't really know when you're doing it. You're just like. Do I just look like a retard right now? I'm trying to act like I'm like, but trying to. Oh, that doesn't really come across on the tape, does it? You try to act all superheroly and manly, and you're like, oh my god, I look like the biggest douchebag. But then we saw it last night or Friday night during the episode. I was like, wow, that's kind of badass. I was into it. How do they do the eye thing? Is that contact lenses or is it visual effects? It's a total visual effect. It's all CGI. Wow, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Now you've been like on 24. A lot, a lot of TV and stuff. How's like being on 24? The feel of it differ from like Haven. Haven's like summer camp, man. We have so much fun. I mean, 24 is a very intense show, and we all took it very seriously, and it was a great group of people. And I love Kiefer, and I love Carla Rota, and everybody that we worked with. But Haven is literally summer camp. We have so much fun. We surf every weekend. We go tidal bore rafting and cliff jumping, and we have a blast. Because cool, you're in Nova Scotia, right? Yeah. And, and because we're in Nova Scotia, we're like a really tight little family. It's awesome. Do you have any challenges playing a character that can't feel pain? Um, Lucas well, Bryant loves Adam Copeland. Lucas Bryant loves Adam Copeland. <laughs> um, challenges... I feel like your character sometimes... The main challenge is... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I feel like sometimes when you play a character, especially in the beginning, is he seems like not only can you not feel physical sensations, but you seem a little cold emotionally at first. Right. totally. That is, uh, yeah, I guess that is the biggest challenge, that I, Lucas, am a much more animated creature than Nathan. Like so, <laughs> so the biggest thing is just to like calm the F down with my face and my body and my voice and everything that's my biggest challenge yeah not to just like be a total weirdo although Nathan is a great weirdo in in, in certain ways it just expresses itself completely differently I mean, what do you think of the direction of the show now because it's changed quite a bit since season one yeah totally and uh, this now I feel like um, you know when I first read the pilot script for the original show that I read was was a very different script than the pilot we ended up making and I'm, you know, love the show that we've we've made. That, um, but I especially love how it's grown. And this season now, I feel like um, this is the there's attention, much more attention being paid to the characters, relationships, and mythology. And that was something that I wanted. That I I think a lot of people involved in the show wanted from the beginning. You know, writers and and actors included. So, yes, like now I feel like Haven has really found its strides, like big, ambitious episodes. If you've seen this season so far, I think each of those episodes, you know, um, show that that it's like a whole new world. So, yeah, I'm hugely proud and excited of this 
of and for season three. How did you make the move from pro wrestling to acting? Um, you know, it was it, I was forced to retire from wrestling due to injury. Um, so it, it was it was kind of one. It was a happy accident, is is the term I keep using. In that, I didn't choose to walk away from wrestling. You know, um, I had no choice. So when you're you're faced with that. It's like, okay, you can go, I guess, one of two ways. You can decide to hop back on the horse and do something else or do what I initially wanted to do, become a recluse and grow a massive beard. <laughs> that was the first instinct. I was going to go up in the mountains and, yeah, I'll see you when I see you. Um, but I got a call almost directly after I retired, and it was Haven saying, hey, do, do you want to do a part on the show? And uh, it was a natural tie-in because, you know, SmackDown was on leading right into Haven. They wanted to get a wrestler, and I was free. Um, and you in, were you in Sanctuary? I was in Sanctuary, too. I was still wrestling when I, when I did that. Um, so I, I think, you know, and, and one of the creators, uh, Sam, tells the story where, you know, they didn't know what to expect. You know, they heard wrestler and, and assumed it would be a guy that would yell his lines and, you know, uh, be this big, hairy, sweaty guy. Um, so when I, they, they saw my retirement speech and what was two scenes became four scenes. And then when I got up there, after the first two scenes, they were like, do you want to do more episodes? And I'm, yeah, sure. So it really just kind of organically grew from that. I never had the intention to, to be an actor. I never planned on another career after. That was pretty much it for me. I was, I was good to retire and be gone. Did you have any formal training or was it just pro wrestling experience? None whatsoever. No training. I still haven't had training, man. That, uh, I think that'll kind of be the next step because for me, because it wasn't on my radar really, I I just thought, okay, this will be fun to do. And then it was really fun to do. And I really enjoyed it. And it still, for me, was a way to get my creative juices, you know, still out of my system because I, I in hindsight, realized I have to do something, whether it's writing another book, whether it's illustrating a book, whether it's uh, painting, I have to do something. Um, but I'm also a very physical person. Acting kind of involves both because you got to hit your marks. You you have to um, your presence on the screen, so you have to you know you have to be physical. But you're also having to uh, to get a character across. So for me, it, it has kind of just luckily and happily become this new thing that I'm really looking at as another challenge now something I have to learn and something I have to get good at um, I feel like I conquered you know the old gig like I, I get it, it, it I, I felt so comfortable I could go out in front of any audience and I knew I was gonna blow the roof off the place this is all new this is like a whole new challenge so it's it's kind of fun I know, I know I'm not good and I want to get good well, I think you do a really good job you know a lot of pro wrestlers when they first start get a little too too much, but you do it very subtle. And very, very I wanted to keep it subtle. Do they let you do your own stunts? Uh, you know what? Because of the neck injury, they don't want me doing them. But I did the fight scene with Eric. You know, as as they they had a stunt guy there, and I was like, guys, I can do this. I mean, this is my wheelhouse. You know, I know this. But they were very concerned. You know, um, I, I have a lot of pressure on my spinal cord, so there's a risk. Uh, 
you know, in anything physical I do. But the 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 Adam in me was like, no, yeah, I, I got this. So we did the fight scene, had a lot of fun with it. Um, but I haven't been asked to do any stunts yet. And I don't think they will because of that. You're talking about the fight over the silver box, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, we, we, we had a fight, you know, in Duke's apartment on the ship. And uh, we just kind of sat there. And he's a very physical guy and he trains MMA. So we were able to start, okay, if we do this and that and that. And suddenly, you know, with our director, Sean Pillar, we, we the spacing that he wanted, where he wanted it to go. And we choreographed a fight. And it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, is there anything you can tell us about your character coming up? Anything you can hint to? I, I mean, little by little, and I like that it's a slow, slow progression with the character. You start to see more layers. Um, start to understand a little bit more about this guy and he, why he is where he is and kind of what makes him tick. Um, and for me as an actor, even though I, I feel uncomfortable using that term, um, it, it's a nice slow progression for me to kind of get my feet wet and, and kind of like flex my muscles a little bit and understand okay I think they're writing this on purpose for me to get comfortable and and little by little it becomes more interaction with all the different characters and this season there's more interaction with uh, Vince and Dave and um, it's nice to be able to, to play the straight man to their quirkiness and and then we're with with Eric, with Duke, to have the two alpha males who begrudgingly respect each other and work together, but really hate each other. That's a fun dynamic. And then the dynamic that I have with Lucas and, and that Nathan and Dwight have, it's like, okay, they're, they're, for lack of a better term, they're like, they're brothers and they look out for each other. So it, it, it's been kind of fun to spread my wings little by little. My name is Chris Stone, I'm the creator of Blood and Bone China, and you're listening to Genretainment. Thanks to the cast of Haven for chatting with us, and we've grown to really enjoy the series and look forward to another season. So that's it for today's Genretainment. Check back next Thursday when we speak with role-playing game writer Monty Cook, who raised over a half a million dollars, wow, on Kickstarter for his newest book. Now join us right back here on this channel at sci-fi pulse radio.com at 4 p.m. Pacific. Until, Until next time. time.